0: So it's summer, and in the summer we do a lot of traveling. A lot of people do traveling, at least. And there are different ways that you could travel to where you're going. Most of you are going to drive. Most of you are going to drive, and some of you will fly. I bet none of you will walk to where you're going. Walking is a uh, is something that none of us typically do on our way to vacation. Uh, although, I was talking to one of our members, who's supposed to have a medical procedure uh, on Tuesday, and they said, maybe they'll start walking to Raleigh tomorrow, and if they feel like it, they'll get the procedure done. Uh, I won't mention Don's name, but if, if I was, it would be Don that would say that. Uh, but there are these different ways that we want we, we travel, and so what I want to do is I want to just pick up the metaphor of traveling, the mode at which we travel. I just want to use that metaphor to guide us through our passage this morning. And so we're gonna do three things with our passage. We're gonna do, uh, we're gonna drive through it. We're gonna walk through it, and then we're just gonna fly over it. Uh, and each time we go through it in each of these ways, we're gonna see something a bit different. And I hope then that we're gonna we're gonna land with some application that you and I can take with us right out of the building. Hopefully. I've done my job right, even as you pull into your driveway, you'll notice some things above you that will grab your attention and remind you of what we did this morning. So hopefully that's where we'll go this morning. So we're going to drive, walk, and fly through our passage this morning. Now like any good trip, we need to prepare. So we need to just prepare for our our journey through just two verses this morning. And so here's how we're going to prepare. I want to do a little summary of where we've been. So last week we walked through the core of Paul's sermon to this group of philosophers in the city of Athens. And there we noted four big points. Four points. So let's, let's review those four points as we prepare to drive, walk, and fly. Here were the four points we noted out of Paul's sermon. This is the worldview he's bringing to these Athenian philosophers. God created the world humans are his children, he is near, and he can be known, and God is not created by human hands. That, those are the four big points that make up Paul's worldview that he is bringing to this group of philosophers in the city of Athens. This is a group of non-Jewish people. And this is, these are his four big points. God created the world. He's a God that's near. He can be known. And he is not made by human hands. And we are his offspring. We're his children. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take that worldview, those four points, and now he's going to drive his message to a conclusion. Just in two verses where he drives it home. And that's that's where we're going to sit this morning. And so what I want to do first is I want to drive through those two verses, the, the, those concluding remarks as Paul takes these four points and and packages it to a driving conclusion. So here we go. We'll drive right through it. And here's how we're going to drive through the passage. We are just going to read it. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to read it. And let's just make up one big observation, just, just like you would on anything else. Just read it and let's walk away with something. Here it is. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31. Here's Paul's conclusion. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. All right, so right there, that's our drive-through. Those two verses. I think there's one big point there. Like when I hear those two verses, I'm just driving through them. One big point. I think, it sits at the center of those two verses. It's a call to repent. To turn around. That's Paul's big call here. If you had to summarize those two, two verses in, in one quick statement, it would be a call to repent. To literally turn around. And this is not new. This isn't new to the, the sermons that we've been exploring for these 20 weeks together. The call to repent is a regular message in the sermons preached by these, these first believers. Take a look. If you remember back in Acts 2.38, Peter replied to the group, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everything in the latter part of the verse is great, but it's the front that starts, starts it. Repent. You turn around. This is a message to those Jewish Christians, uh, those Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Many of them then becoming Christians. Then, next chapter over, when Peter is preaching to another group of Jewish people in the temple, here's what he tells them: Acts 3:19, Repent, and then turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's the message. Repent. Turn around, turn around, turn around. You're going the wrong way. And then when Paul, even Paul, when Paul describes what did Jesus call him to, he describes it as a call to go preach repentance to the nations. There's this moment where he's in front of a government official. His name is King Agrippa. And he's telling King Agrippa about his life, and how in the world he ended up in the place that he was currently at, preaching the message of Jesus. And there in front of Agrippa in Acts 26, here's what he tells Agrippa about what he's been called to. So then, King Agrippa, I was not a disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So when Paul is in Athens telling the people to repent as a key point at the end of the sermon... It's something that he does everywhere he goes, particularly among the Gentiles, so that when he's on trial in front of King Agrippa, describing his life, he will summarize his work up to that point by saying, I was called to go preach. Not only was I called to go preach in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, I went out beyond Jerusalem. I actually went out to all nations and I called them to repent. It's exactly what he's doing in Athens. So... You wonder sometimes, don't you, does, did it actually happen that way? I mean, I could tell you a lot of things about what I hope I'm doing, but what really happened? Well, there's this description in his first letter to the Thessalonians that describes, at least for one group of Christians, exactly what they did when they received the message of Jesus. This group of Gentiles, what happened when they received the message of Jesus? Here's what he says in his letter, 1 Thessalonians 1, through 8-9. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You stopped worshiping something made by human hands. You turned around and you began to worship the living God. They repented. That's the call. That's the call. So that's what I see when I drive through the passage. I just immediately see it's a call to repentance, to turn around. And we see that that's happening all over the ancient world. As the message of Jesus goes out, people are literally changing the way they live and turning around. The Bible word is repent. All right. So what would happen if we walk through the passage? That's right. It's going to get slower. Not that I'll talk slower. We just have a lot of material to get through. Here we go. This is the first thing I see when I walk through the passage. So when I walk through it, immediately what's jumping out is Paul has this this point he wants to make up front. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. So there must have been something in the past that needed to be dealt with, but God decided in His mercy to not punish. To not deal with it on His own terms. He didn't. He ignored it. That is, he, He did ignore it. So, we would hope then at least, that if this is such an important point for Paul here, maybe it's showing up in other places. For Paul it does. For Paul this is very important. That there's this moment before Jesus shows up where God does not give people what they deserve. Here's what he says when he's being worshipped in the city of Lystra. He's performed a miracle and the people worship him as a god. And he tells them, do not worship us as a god. And then he says this, Acts chapter 14 Verse 16, In the past, He let all nations go their own way. Now what comes after that is He's going to declare, but now things have changed. But in the past, God let non-Jewish nations go their way. And at times, we know in the Old Testament, He would call them to account. But in general, in the past, God overlooked ignorance. And then there's this there's this section in the book of Romans, this letter to the Roman church, where Paul is speaking both to Jews and Gentiles, and he's trying to describe why God just didn't destroy everyone all the time in the past. What is it with this patience God has shown people for so long? And he gets to this point in the letter where he describes God's forbearance, his patience, his overlooking of things in the past. And it has everything to do with Jesus. Take a look. Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. We're going to read this out of the New Living Translation, basically because I didn't want to use the word forbearance. I thought I'd have to go into explaining that word. So we're just going to use this translation, which is still grabbing the sense of the text. Here it is. Romans 3, 25 through 26. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now that sacrifice shows... That God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in, in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. Like, what do you do, What happened to all those sins before Jesus? God overlooked them. And he paid their price on the cross through his son Jesus. That's what happened. God didn't just wipe them away. They were paid for. They were dealt with. But all of that forbearance, all of that patience, all that overlooking in the past was because God knew one day He would deal with it. And it would be dealt with on the cross. That's very important. Something's going on in Jesus that has changed everything. But here Paul is explaining that yes, you were ignorant in the past. And by the way, remember, Paul has already referenced their ignorance because this is a people that worship an unknown God. There's a tie-in right there to the start of the sermon. But he's overlooked it. Alright, so that's one thing I see when I'm walking through those two verses. Here's the next thing. I also noticed that, yes, God's overlooked it, but then there's this section where he says that God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Ah! Now this is one that gets uncomfortable, especially when we want Jesus to be nice and kind and comfortable. You see, to this group of non-Jews, he is is declaring there's a day coming where everything will be brought to account and it will come through the man God has appointed. And it it will be described as justice, but it is coming. There is a day coming. And this is a key part of who Jesus is. It's not one that we give a lot of attention to all the time. Now, if you like fire, fire, hell, and brimstone, if you like that, well, then you're going to get this all the time. So if if you show up at a revival at a good conservative Southern Baptist church, you're going to be told at some point you're going to hell, and then they're going to get you out of the flames. That's probably where you're going to be, and Jesus is going to be at the center of all that hellfire. That's just not. It's just not. A, that's just not the way I. That's not. That's just not. That's just not how I preach. I don't know what else to say. I'm trying to say that eloquently. I'm not putting you in hell every Sunday, okay? Although some of you, maybe I should, right? Okay. All right. I'm not saying any names. All right. Ryland. Okay. So, okay. That's my son. That's my son, if you don't know who Ryland is. And they do, they go through, there's hellfire every day. Something, something else. All right, well listen, so here, this is so key, and what I want to do is I want to take you on a tour then through five key passages in the Old Testament. We're going to do them quick, but if you're like, man, that's a lot of passages, my point here is that you actually feel the mundane and the boredom of going through five Bible passages back to back to back. I want you to feel how many they really are kind of like you can watch someone putting a new roof on or you can go put a new roof on yourself and I'm telling you it is very different very different i have blisters to tell me it is very different all right here it is we'll start with jesus oh sorry we'll start with jesus himself john 5 verse 22 moreover the father judges no one but what has he done he's entrusted all judgment to the son that's jesus jesus himself says he has been enlisted, uh, 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 given to judge. Let's go to the Apostle uh, Peter. This is interestingly where he's preaching the first sermon to the Gentiles, to Cornelius. Act 10, verse 42, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Let's go on to another thing Peter says. 1 Peter 4.5 But then they will have to give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So You see what's happening here? Jesus, judge. Let's go to Paul now. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You will be judged by Jesus. And then last one here from Paul, 2 Timothy 4, one, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. You see this? Jesus doesn't Jesus mean, but He is very powerful. And He will bring, make all things and bring all things into rightness one day. And for many, it will be a very bad day. And for many, it will also be a very good day. But there is a day, and there is Jesus, and He is judge. And that's something we need to hear. That's something we need to hear and we need to understand about Jesus. All right. so with that said, we're going to now take one more pass as we're walking through this passage and look at one more thing. It's at the end here. The proof of everything we've just described, the proof is here. Proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection has a lot to say about the way the world works. One of those is that death has been destroyed. But it also says that Jesus is now reigning king. When the early Christians would talk about the resurrection, it just wasn't that death was destroyed. It wasn't that just Jesus was now living. It meant that now He was seated at the right hand of God. It meant that now authority was given to this One brought back from the dead. It's proof that all that stuff about being the judge is actually true. Why? Because He's actually alive with authority. Right now. Sunday, May 23rd, 2021. He's alive with authority. And this is... Just one example right here. I'm just going to pull one scripture here in the first Christian sermon. First one ever given. We studied this at length. Acts 2, verse 32, first part of verse 33. Here's how Peter talks about the resurrection. Oh, he talks about Jesus coming back to life. But then he adds this. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God. It's not that Jesus just came back from the grave and then he went off on vacation. He is reigning, exalted at the right hand of God. The resurrection tells us something about his current position. And this is what Paul's saying right here uh, as he ends this sermon. So that's our walkthrough. That's our walkthrough. Now you know when you walk, you see things you wouldn't see otherwise. And I hope that we just did that. We saw three things you might not have seen uh, otherwise. And you know when you drive through something, you see things. Other things. And you obviously will miss some things, but you'll maybe notice others. But when you fly over something, you get a new perspective. You get a perspective of how vast land is and how small other things are. So what I want to do is I just want to take a flyover this these two verses. I don't want to read them again. But if we just flew over these verses and we just just zoomed way out, what would we have to say about these two verses? I mean, what are they saying big picture? I mean, as big as we can go, I think it's this. I'm going to summarize it this way. With Jesus, a fundamental change has happened in the world. New creation has begun. Literally, something has shifted in the world. We are not living in the same kind of world that existed a hundred years before Jesus showed up. Something has changed fundamentally shifted everything hinges on Jesus. Now I know that we date, you know, we use we date our calendar using Jesus and his birth. But that wasn't always the case. Even if the calendar never hinged on the birth of Jesus, he would still be the hinge of all of human existence. When Jesus came back to life was exalted to the right hand of the father, New creation entered the world. That means that dead people in their spirits, started coming back to life. You had a world beginning to flow with love and not revenge. This isn't something that was was widespread in the ancient world before Jesus. The Jews couldn't even get this right. But with Jesus, something new started spreading in people's souls. And now you have a world so immersed in the story of Jesus... That we don't even understand what the world would be like without Him. The closest we get are things like the Holocaust. That, That may be some of the closest we get to what a world might look like without Jesus. Ah, but new creation has started and is guaranteed to take over the rest of the world. A new heaven and a new earth. New creation is the point of all of it. Now, I'm not just making this up. As the Apostle Paul reflected in some of his letters... On exactly how you'd summarize what really matters, there are just these glimpses where he zooms out, almost like he's flying over the gospel he brings to people, and he says just that. Take a look. Galatians. At the end of his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 14-15. He says, if May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, nor Democrats or Republicans, nor poor nor rich, nor America nor China, nor Putin nor Trump nor Biden means anything. All of that extra is in the Greek, just so you know. No, it, it doesn't mean anything. What counts is the new creation. That's what matters. So when Paul stands before these Athenian philosophers, for him, the world is fundamentally changed. And that's the message he brings to them. Ah, oh, it's all right there. So, what in the world would we what does this have to say to our lives? I mean, what application could we draw out of this? Well, I think it's that last one, that flyover that really hits home. That something is fundamentally changed in our world. I think that's what we need to remember. Now, the way I think we got to remember it is that you and I are not islands. And so, this is where I got to pick up that whole judge thing. Jesus is still the man appointed, God in flesh, now seated at the right hand of God, who one day will judge the world. So, that brings me to this point. And I understand that we usually don't walk around thinking this, but we often try to live this way. So here it is. Here's how I think I want to land this. I just I just flew right through this summary. I think I added all that extra to the verse. Let's go let's continue on to this application. I think the Holy Spirit wanted me to cut something out so we'd end on time. Let's go to application. Next let's go to the next one. There it is. We are not God. God is God. And he will have the final say in this world, and his son, Jesus, will be the judge. That's where I want to I land us. Now, that's, that's big, but I still think it might say something to us, that you're not God. Now, what, Where this? I think where the rubber hits the road on this is when we get so comfortable with Jesus that we think that he's our buddy. Listen, I am all for Jesus being our comforting shepherd. He is a good shepherd, but he's a good shepherd with power. He is not your buddy. You don't just buddy up to Jesus and get comfortable. Because when you get comfortable, you get complacent. And when you get complacent, you often think you can control and manipulate. And Jesus will not be controlled, manipulated, or tricked. He is king. He is the judge. Now, I think this might start working its way into us in the 21st century in our concern for privacy. There's a lot of concern for privacy today. There's a, there's privacy laws related to your mobile device, to your banking information. Now what I'm not talking about is the banking information. I'm not talking about your social security number. That everyone should have your social security number. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this concern that we hide things. I'm all for securing our data, but. Sometimes the conversation about privacy has worked into our lives so deeply that we begin to think that we have a right to hide. We even have browsers now that have a privacy tab so that you just click on private and all of a sudden nothing you do gets tracked. Why would you need that kind of privacy? Now there may be good reasons, but I can tell you there are plenty of bad reasons too to hide your browsing history. Or delete it. We get to this point, I think, with Jesus that we think we can actually hide from Him. We start hiding text messages. We start hiding browser history. We start hiding our location from family members who should never have a concern where we are. We start hiding things we might be doing at school or at college or at work. We start doing workarounds so no one can find out. And we have this sense that if we if we hide from the people in our lives. Then we really hidden. What I think we need to hear today is nothing you do is ultimately hidden. And I think if we understood exactly what Jesus is talking about, about making all things known one day, we would be pretty embarrassed about the things that will be revealed about us. There is no backroom gossip that will not one day be revealed. And I know we can go to great lengths to talk bad about people. It will not be hidden forever. There is a judge. And that judge is powerful. And I think it's something we need to acknowledge. And so there's this this moment in one of uh, C.S. Lewis's book. You may remember it. It's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Mr. Beaver is describing to one of the children who Aslan, who represents the Christ character, who represents Jesus in the story. You might remember Mr. Beaver's describing Aslan the great lion, to one of the children. And this is how Mr. Beaver describes it. We'll read the whole section right here. It's just it's short. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the thing I want to drive home. Jesus is not safe, but he's good. Now you might ask, uh, as I was uh, talking about the sermon this week, Ethan said, what do you mean Jesus isn't safe? I thought we come to Jesus with all our problems. You mean he's not safe? I said, not in that way. It's more in the way where you stand back in awe of something very powerful. Uh, One of the guys working on my roof this week told me about working on boilers that are stories high. If I'm in the presence of a boiler, a boiler boiling water for a factory that's stories high, I have a sense of awe. I have enough sense not to go up and touch it. All right. I want you to see how this worked out in the life of Jesus. Just... Two more passages. I want you to see this. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. So there's this moment where Jesus is calling His first disciples and He tells them, you go out and I want you to go throw your nets back in. I know you worked all last night, but I want you to go throw your your nets back in. Peter thinks this is crazy, but they do it. Here's what happens next. After they throw their nets out, the boat overflows with fish. Verse 8, Luke 5. When Simon Peter saw this, saw their boats overflowing with fish he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. The kind of of thing we're talking about is the kind of fear that doesn't make you say, wow, you're not safe. It's It's the kind of fear that says, oh my gosh, like I'm in the presence of something very powerful. See, that's what it looks like to be good, but not safe. And then this one, Jesus shows up, He, there's a procession, they're carrying the body of a young man, a widow is mourning the loss of her son. Jesus comes up and he brings the son back to life. And here's what we read next, Luke seven sixteen in the New Living Translation. Great fear swept the crowd and they praised God saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people today. That's a great fear that says, ah, something good has just showed up, but it is not safe. That's the thing we're talking about. Jesus is the judge. Oh, he is good, but never think he is safe. He is way too powerful to be safe. I'm glad he's good, because power in the hands of someone not good never turns out well. But he is good. So what are we going to do with this? Here's a quick next step. Here's a quick next step. Something you can do when you pull into your driveway today. Here it is. Look at the power lines and remember Jesus is good, but not safe. So that throughout the week as you're driving, you're pulling into your house, you make sure to look at the power lines. There's a reason you don't run, climb those power lines and grab them. And I like to climb things, but I have never ventured to climb up the power pole. Never. Because I know to do so would probably end in my death. Because I know up there is power. And I love that power. I do. It gives me the internet and TV. gives me the microwave and a refrigerator I can fill with food. Love those power lines. But I always have a healthy respect for them. And there is where we need to be with Jesus. He is good, but He is not safe. And let the power lines remind you of that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and we've just come into contact with a lot of it. Would You continue to shape us and mold us as a community, as individuals, to see the fullness of Your Son, Jesus? Ah, yes, He is good, but definitely not safe. So we come to Him, we come to Him with fear, but fear that is awe. And would You help us train in that direction? If we are hiding anything, would you bring it to light or convict us to stop it? We're going to need that. May we become a people who turn around and repent from the things we're trying to hide. And we ask that in the name and the power of Jesus, our judge. And together we say, Amen.